It's good to worship with you this morning. It's always a delight to be with God's people. Uh, Open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're wrapping up our series on 2 Corinthians. We are almost to the end. Um, We have this one, and then it looks like one more. We'll wrap up, and then the plan is to go to James next. So if you want to be getting ahead, start reading through James and re-familiarizing yourself with it. That's, uh, that's the plan for next. <clears throat> but this morning, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 to 10, the sermon's called A Final Warning. A Final Warning. Because as Paul starts wrapping up his letter to the Corinthians, he's giving them a final warning. So see what I did there? It's, he's giving them a final warning. So I titled it cleverly, A Final Warning. When John... <laughs> When John preaches, he always has these like elaborate, clever sermon titles, and then mine are usually just like this, a final warning. Uh, Warnings can be good, loving, gospel motivators. Um, There's this idea that kind of floats around that only nice, sweet, encouraging words are effective and loving and gospel-rooted motivation, but that idea is just simply out of line with the Bible. We just see constantly throughout the Bible and throughout the New Covenant scriptures um, a variety of motivators that God uses for his people, and one of them is gracious warnings, and that's what we see here again in our passage this morning. We're going to see Paul warning people in the church who are continuing in high-handed sin that if necessary, he will come and he will not spare them that he will deal with them in the power of God and that he will use the authority that Christ has given him with severity. Now, Paul doesn't want to have to do those things, thus the warning, right? He doesn't want to have to come and use his authority with severity, so he warns them that that's what would have to come if they don't change course so that they will change course and repent and then all will be well as Paul wants. Their restoration is what Paul is working for. Their restoration is what he's praying for. And this is what we'll see. And we see also that the mark of Paul's apostleship, remember in the last section, if you were here, we saw that one of the marks of Paul's apostleship is utmost patience. Signs and wonders, miracles are a mark of his apostleship. They show that he held this unique office in the church. But another one of those marks that show he held this unique office is that he had the utmost patience. And we see that utmost patience on display with the church in Corinth. Paul has been dealing with this situation in Corinth, this same situation, for a long time. This visit that he's telling them about in the warning that we're going to read in just a minute, this visit that he's telling them about is going to be his third visit, not to mention letters that he sent and people that he sent to do good to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians are kind of a difficult bunch to deal with. And Paul continues with utmost patience to lovingly teach them and shepherd them and seek for their good in Christ. And what an example Paul is to us in bearing with one another in love. 
Uh, I don't think of Gospel Church as a particularly difficult church. Uh, I love this church. You guys are a generous bunch, and I praise God for that. But, but we all have to overlook things with one another from time to time, don't we? But in addition to seeing Paul's example here of utmost patience, there are a few other ways we can benefit from this passage which God put here for our edification. There's a few things. First, this passage reminds us of the reality and the importance of church discipline. The Christian life is not a lone wolf thing. It's not an individualistic me and Jesus kind of deal. We are a family. We are one body. And our lives and our sins and our struggles affect each other inevitably. When one member suffers, we all suffer together. We have accountability towards one another. We have responsibilities towards one another. We are our brother's keepers. And we might have to do church discipline that we see Paul doing here in Corinth or warning about. We might have to do church discipline. We've done it before, and we may have to do it again, even in the near future. And we all have a role in that. That's something that a church does all together. And it needs to, when it's done, it needs to be done lovingly, it needs to be done carefully, it needs to be done biblically, so that we do this well. Addressing issues within the membership is a central thing we do at our annual members meeting. So Matt talked about the members meeting that's next Sunday after church. Uh, we talk about the budget, where the money was spent. There's just good open accounting, what we're planning to do with the giving uh, over the next year, but then also we talk about the members of the church. Who's struggling? Who needs help? What about people who've moved on? What are they doing? Are they finding another good church? And we watch out for one another because this is what we do as members of the same body. We look out for each other's spiritual good. And that's something that we're all called to as a church. And since we have that meeting coming next Sunday, this is a timely reminder for us about the reality and the importance of watching out for each other as fellow members of the body of Christ. And part of that is the somewhat unpleasant task of dealing with those who are considering abandoning Christ in our midst. So this passage is a good reminder for us about the, the importance of church discipline as Paul warns about it. It's also a good reminder not to let yourself end up in a situation of church discipline, right? It happens from time to time where we have to do this kind of thing as the church, don't let it be you. Please hear me. I think maybe everybody has this temptation to think like, to look at the guy sitting next to him. Yeah, don't let it be you, buddy. Watch out. But I mean you. Don't let it be you. Please. Come to church. Avoid high-handed sin. Keep short accounts of your sin, by which I mean dealing with sin as it comes up, addressing it, confessing it, and repenting. Submit to your leaders. Be accountable to your brothers and sisters. And then the third thing I think we can learn from hearing this warning from Paul is related to that. This passage is a good exhortation to self-rule. When we rule ourselves well, we are a blessing to the church around us. When we walk in the fruit of the spirit of self-control, then we don't require discipline from others. And so we're exhorted by this passage to be self-controlled people who deal with our own stuff before the Lord. 
All right, so let's read the passage, and then we'll walk through and we'll see these valuable applications as we walk through the scriptures this morning. 2 Corinthians 13, 1 through 10. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Amen? Amen. The final warning. It's a pretty simple and straightforward passage. There's basically two sections to it. First, Paul warns those who are sinning in Corinth. And second, Paul urges the sinners in Corinth to deal with their sin. So he warns those who are sinning, and then he urges those to deal with their sin. We'll look at those two one at a time. First, Paul warns the sinners in Corinth. This is the first four verses. He's getting ready to come to them yet again as he points out a third time in verse 1. And the situation is not merely an interpersonal squabble where it's just like Paul and somebody didn't quite see eye to eye. But rather, this is something that has risen to the need for church authorities to get involved to sort it out. If the Corinthians have elders at this point, they don't seem able to resolve the issues with their authority and wisdom. And so Paul is having to come in and get involved as the founder of the church and as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And we know that it's risen to this level, that it's not just a personal squabble between Paul and somebody else. We know that it's risen to this level because Paul brings up the language of establishing charges in verse 1. This is the third time I've coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So what's going on here requires charges that are established. It requires the gathering of evidence and the assembling of witnesses. This is a formal proceeding that's going on as a result of the sin of some people in the church in Corinth. So in bringing up this idea of charges being brought, Paul reminds them of a crucial biblical principle in situations of conflict that arise to formal charges and complaints, the necessity to establish a charge by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
I was talking to somebody the other day about membership over text, and they jokingly pointed out that I was sounding like a lawyer. And so does Paul here. And I think that sometimes surprises people because we've been trained to think of the church as merely a place to hear inspirational talks, sing some uplifting songs, maybe get a good counseling pep talk from time to time. But the church is much more than that. The church carries out the business of the kingdom of Christ. And sometimes, therefore, the church has to deal with conflicts and charges, evidence and authority, and in a way, even punishment. That's what we see here. This is the third time I've come into you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The state government is given the sword by God to deal with crimes. The household fathers are given the rod to deal with character formation. And the church is given the keys of the kingdom of Christ to deal with unrepentant sin. And because the church is called to deal in these types of things, it's very important that the church does them well and carefully and lovingly and biblically and in truth. And it's very important that the church is led by upright and wise men who can lead well in these kinds of things. Do you want a goofy, charismatic man-child dealing in your life and family on matters like this? No. Do you want men who are respectable, men who are above reproach, men who take life seriously? It's also why there needs to be good establishment and implementation of biblical standards for addressing issues of sin and conflict according to God's word. One example of those is this principle that needs to be followed carefully, that every charge must be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. This is repeated over and over again throughout Scripture. Because often, rather than that, things are carried out by gossip and insinuation, aren't they? When there's trouble, when there's disagreement, when people get pitted against one another, how often are those things addressed by whispering, by insinuating wrongs done until the court of public opinion rules and issues are addressed not straightforwardly and openly and publicly, but people are quietly asked to leave or have their character assassinated without ever having a real and fair hearing where both sides are heard by the actual people who need to hear them. This typical process of rather just gossiping and whispering and assassinating character and then quietly driving people out is dysfunctional, and in fact, it's evil. And while witnesses and evidence and charges might sound kind of lawyery, or overly legal for the church, which is a family, these things are given to us by God in his infinite wisdom, and we ignore them to our own peril. So if you find yourself involved in a situation where there are accusations of wrongdoing against someone in the church, you should consider this principle that Paul lays out here very seriously. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
Don't just accept charges against your brothers and sisters. Don't accept whispery, gossipy, slandery charges and then let that affect your opinion of people. God has laid out a process of dealing with conflict directly that begins at the personal level. And if it rises beyond that, it has a built-in method of gathering witnesses. Do you know what I'm talking about? Matthew chapter 18. Let's just read it again so that we, re- we remember how Jesus himself taught us to deal with conflict. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, has that ever happened to you? Ever had a brother sin against you? <laughs> if your brother sins against you, go and gossip about it with your friends. Right? Make sure everybody knows. And that's how you can really stick it to them. And then they'll learn their lesson not to do it again. No. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. There it is. Your brother sins against you, go and tell it to him. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. But if he does not listen, if he listens, you've gained your brother. It's over. Problem resolved. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established, charge established, by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There it is from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is how we deal in the church with issues of sin. You deal with it first one-on-one. If it doesn't work, You take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So God has this process of dealing with conflict that begins personal, and if it rises beyond that, as this built-in method of gathering witnesses, so that every charge is established by two or three witnesses. So you go, if they don't listen, then you bring one or two with you, so that with you and that one or two, you have two or three witnesses to now go and get involved in the situation. Built-in method where witnesses are being gathered. But it begins with personal dealing, just staying as close as necessary. And ideally, that's where it ends, and it never comes to any of this. But if it doesn't, then charge is established by two or three witnesses. And only after all that has been tried, and so maybe you just bring the two or three, the one or two with you, and there's two or three together, and then maybe they listen, and you win your brother, and it's all dealt with, and it's over. And that's great. But if even that doesn't work, only then does it rise to the, to the level of the attention of the greater public, the church at large. And none of that's done by gossip and rumors and whispering and just kind of spreading it around, but rather by an open examination of the situation by God's people, publicly, but only and always when necessary. What a brilliant and wise and helpful system our God has given to us for dealing with conflict. Do you see it that way? 
We should be aware of how God has taught us to do this and then seek to follow it carefully in our dealings. So Paul's telling the Corinthians he's coming for this third visit. He lays out the principle of fair dealing in their situation and then he gives them a straightforward warning in verse 2. So we're back in 2 Corinthians 13. Now we're under verse 2. He gives them a straightforward warning. He's warned the people who sinned when he visited the last time and he's warning them now again. If he has to come again, he will not spare them. This warning is direct enough to strike some appropriate fear into those who are not repentant, right? I warned those who sinned before and all the others. I warned them now while absent, as I did when pressing on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. It's direct enough to strike some fear. He's not going to spare me. Uh-oh. <laughs> but it's also vague enough to be kind of terrifying, isn't it? It's like, what's he going to do? <laughs> I'm not going to spare you. He mentions that they want proof that Christ is speaking in him, and he says he will show them the power of Christ. That's verses 3 and 4. He elaborates a little bit on what he's going to do, still somewhat vaguely, but they've accused Paul of being weak. This part of their shtick, of these false teachers, these people who are sinning and trying to lead the Corinthians away from Christ, part of their accusation is that the Apostle Paul is weak, which is crazy. If you've read the life of the Apostle Paul, but here they are. They've accused Paul of being weak and of not speaking for Christ. But when Paul comes, he will show them the power of Christ. It will not be the weak, in quotation marks, okay, the weak mercy of Christ that he's imitated among them, but he's going to come in Christ's power. Because he acknowledges, look, Christ was crucified in weakness in verse 4. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. Christ first came humbly. We've just spent a lot of time in the Christmas and the Advent season meditating on the humble state of Christ's coming to us. What a wonderful Savior that came as a child, as a baby, born in a manger. What a humble, kind, merciful coming the Lord Jesus brought. Going all the way to the death of the cross to graciously secure our salvation, to deal with our sin, to deal tenderly with us, to come in weakness. He was crucified in weakness. But we should not assume that that's Christ's only posture. Paul says Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. He says that in verse 3. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. So is Jesus, does Jesus come in weakness or does he come in strength? Well, that depends. We need to understand the richness of this and we don't just only latch on to one or the other. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. He is powerful among you. Christ Jesus is to be loved, worshipped, believed, adored, feared as the power of God. And Paul has come to Corinth in a similar way that Jesus has come to us. He leads with humility. He comes first with humility, with weakness, with self-sacrifice, with meekness, with 
gentleness, just laying his life down for the Corinthians. This is his approach. But it's not Paul's only posture. Verse 4, he says, We also are weak in him, in Christ. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Christ was crucified in weakness, but he lives now in power. Is Christ currently in a posture of weakness? No, he came down and down and down and was crucified, but then he was raised from the dead, and then he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God on high, where all kingdoms have been given to him, and he exercises all rule and authority and power. Weakness is not his only approach. Paul says, we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places even now by faith. And so if the Corinthians continue in their high-handed sin, they will see another side of Paul. And that's the warning. They will see another side of Paul, which is to say they will see another side of Christ because Christ is in them in power and it will not be good for them. And because Paul loves them, He warns them. Let me tell you personally, I've seen this. There have been a handful of times over the years when the elders of Gospel Church have been in deteriorating situations with people who were being obstinate and high-handed in their sin and not so much personal conflict with us, but we were trying to shepherd them through their sin and lead them to repentance and to own their sin and to confess it to God, and to walk in righteousness. And after they didn't listen to many kind and merciful appeals to turn from sin, eventually the elders have had to change their tone and charge people before God to specific courses of action. And every time that it's come to that point, and people have refused to submit to it, We have seen God stand behind it and enforce it and bring real consequences in ways that have made the leaders sit down and tremble. Do you see what God just did? We should all, every one of us, be very careful. If the church starts charging you before God to turn course, you should listen. When the church comes to you and the weak tone has been left behind and now it's time for difficult words and for a charge in the name of the Lord, you should listen because we've watched what happens when people disregard that and we've seen the Lord stand behind it. And it's unpleasant to say the least. And this is where it's come with Paul and the Corinthians. And so he urges them again to deal with their own sin. This brings us to the second half of the passage. Paul urges the sinners in Corinth to deal with their own sin in verses 5 to 10. The first step to dealing with their own sin is to examine themselves, to test themselves, to see whether they're in the faith. That's the exhortation in verse 5. Nobody can do this like you can. Nobody can test yourself like you can. Nobody can examine your heart to see whether you're in the faith Like you, you alone have access into your heart to see and to examine whether you are truly dealing with God. Literally nobody else has access inside your mind and your heart and your motives like you do. 
Proverbs say that the heart is a deep well and it takes a man of understanding to draw it out. But we learn to do that first with ourselves, to search our own hearts. And we should all take time to honestly understand our own hearts before the Lord. To honestly examine our own motives, our own hearts. And I think a lot of times people fail to do this. It's hard to do this. It's easier to just distract yourself, to just turn on another show and just let the episodes roll one after the other and just avoid dealing with what's going on in your own mind and in your own heart and just stay on the phone. And if you have a spare minute to, and, and you don't want to have to think about it, just get it out and scroll through something so that you don't have to self-assess. You know, they did a, a psychological test several years ago where they put people in a room alone with nothing but their own thoughts except a machine that would administer an electrical shock to themselves. Like a bad one that hurts. Not kill you, but, you know, hurts you. And they found that most people would rather submit themselves to electric shock than just to be alone with their own thoughts. You have two options. Just deal with what's going on inside your mind and heart or distract yourself by administering electrical shocks. And most people would just sit there and shock themselves. The findings of the study were shocking. <clears throat> Thank you. <laughs> I, I was waiting. <laughs> uh, but so my, the point that this shows is just like how much we want to avoid self-assessment. Just looking into our own hearts and self-reflection. We'd rather distract ourselves or even lie to ourselves about our true motives and our true goals. But what a foolish thing to do to lie to ourselves or to avoid dealing with our own selves because it doesn't absolve us of responsibility. It won't hold up before the throne of God where we're like, I didn't realize I was doing that. So why fool ourselves? Why accept lies from ourselves? I don't think it takes real genius to understand our own heart, our own mind, and our own motives. But I think it takes honesty and uprightness and courage and some effort. But listen, we've had people sit with the elders at Gospel Church and tell us, assure us that they are believers, that they know God truly, and then pretend to live among us as believers, but eventually time demonstrated that they were not truly in the faith. This has happened many times in the life of Gospel Church. Some, when they became aware of it, then repented and truly came to Christ. And what a wonderful opportunity. Others walked away when they realized. When they got really honest with themselves and with us, they walked away. And we shouldn't be naive and think that now there's nothing like that going on. I mean, I like each one of you but it could be that some of you who say you're in the faith really aren't in the faith. And if that's the case with you, you desperately need to figure it out and deal with God. This is the most important thing in all human existence. Are you truly in the faith? Do you know Christ actually and really? 
Do you know the warning that Jesus gives on the last day? Many people are going to come and say, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name and healed the sick in your name and did these things in your name. And he will say, depart from me for I never knew you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now we don't want everybody running around all the time doubting their salvation and never able to settle and think, I do truly know him. You, need, you have need for confidence to persevere to the end. It's important to recognize Paul's addressing people living in some pretty unrepentant sin here. The question, that really raises the question is like, look at your life. And if you just have unrepentant sin that you just continue on in over and over again, that's when you really need to heed that warning. But if you've never really honestly examined yourself and tested yourself, to see whether you're in the faith, you need to do that. And if you're living in unrepentant sin, you really need to do it. So what's the test? How do you do it? Test yourselves, he says. By God's grace, the Bible gives us a whole book to help us test ourselves to see whether we're really in the faith. Do you know which book it is? I think I heard it. First John. The purpose statement of 1 John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The gospel of John is, I write these things to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, the first epistle of John is, I'm writing now to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's about assurance of salvation. And there are four basic criteria that cycle through the book of 1 John. Four basic tests that he gives you to examine yourselves by. I'll just show them to you briefly. Because I think it might be cruel to tell you to test yourselves, but not remind you how to do that. What's the standard of the test? <clears throat> First, believers are characterized by their good actions. These are all from 1 John, and I'll show you the verses. Believers are characterized by their good actions. 1 John 2, 3 to 6 says, By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. By this we know that we've come to know him, to be born again, to come to know God, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's not sinless perfection in this life. First John says if you say you have no sin, you're a liar also. But it's a genuine pattern of life that keeps his commandments. Believers are characterized by obedience to God, by good works. Secondly, 1 John tells us that believers are characterized by their true confession about Christ and themselves. True believers confess their own sin, 1 John 1, 8 to 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess ourselves, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Do you confess your own sins to God? Do you bring them to him regularly when you sin and deal with them before the Lord and receive his forgiveness? 
Also, true believers confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God who came in the flesh. The prophet, priest, and king, the Lord and Savior who came to earth as a man to die and to save us from our sins. True believers confess Christ as their Savior. 1 John 5.1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the King of all? Or 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You confess Jesus as the eternal Son of God, God himself come to save you. In 1 John 4, 2-3, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You confess that God himself became a man in the person of Jesus Christ to save you. Not just like the spirit of Christ, Christ's consciousness. Like God manifested himself in the Buddha and in the Christ and in all. Not, not, none of that. That's not the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh. We're talking about God himself living among men. You believe that and confess him as your Savior and your Lord. So Christians live lives of obedience. They confess their own sin and their faith in Christ. Third, believers are characterized by loving hearts. Where there's four tests. This is the third one. This is 1 John 4, 7 to 12. They love. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the third way you know that you truly know God is that you love your fellow Christians, your brothers and sisters. You love the people of God. You want to be around them. You want to have them over. You want to spend time with them. You want to know them. You help bear their burdens. You care for them. And fourthly, believers are characterized by the presence of God's Holy Spirit abiding in them. 4.13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. That his spirit testifies with your spirit that you are a child of God. 1 John 5, 6, and 10, the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The Holy Spirit testifies to the reality of Christ Jesus, and if you are in him, you have that Spirit testifying with your spirit to the reality of Christ and God. That's the test. Those are the tests. So when Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, test yourselves, these are the ways the scripture gives us to test. <laughs> Listen, these are not the basis of your salvation, which is God's grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. That's the basis of your salvation. That's how you get saved. You don't get saved by obeying good enough and loving hard enough. That's not how you get saved, but by receiving Christ by faith. 
That's the basis of your salvation. The basis of your salvation is the righteousness of Christ accounted to you by faith alone. That's the basis. That's, that's the basis of your standing before God. These are evidences that you have a true and saving faith. This is what that reality then produces in your life when you have been saved and restored to God. These are the evidences, and so these become the test. You walk in righteousness, you confess and believe the truth about you and about Christ, you love God and other Christians, and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. So Paul encourages them to test themselves, and he assumes that they will test him by the same standard as well. Look at verse 6. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So he's like, examine yourselves. I know you're examining me because they keep examining Paul and telling him that he's too weak and he's not really very great. But he wants them to test themselves also and then to do what's right. It's just like Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye, then you can see to help get the speck out of your brothers. It's pretty easy to go around examining each other's faith, isn't it? We're all pretty good at that one. You don't need much exhortation to that. To go around thinking about noticing everything wrong with everybody else. But we've got to start with ourselves. Paul wants them to test themselves and then to do what's right. Even if they do what's right, and then he seems to have been wrong in writing his harsh letter, he's fine with that. Because what he wants is their salvation. That's verse 7, right? I hope you'll find out that we've not failed the test. Listen, we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what's right, though we may seem to have failed. It's like, as long as you're right with God, I don't care. I'm not just trying to win this argument with you. You see, that's his point. Like, we're in kind of a quarrel, and it's not just about me showing I, Paul, was right, and you guys were wrong. That's not his goal. His goal is just for them to know Christ truly and well and to do what's right. And he's like, even if in the end it looks like I was wrong and you guys are vindicated and you're doing great, that's fine with me. Because I just want you to do what's right. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what's right, though we may seem to have failed. That's because Paul's committed to the truth. In verse 8, we, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. He's not just here to try to vindicate himself. He's, just ser- he's a servant of Christ, and therefore he's a servant of the truth in Corinth. Not to vindicate himself and not to vindicate them. It's not about this petty squabble. It's just about what's true. He's bound to what's true. And this is a good example to them. He wants them to be bound to what's true. Know what's true about you guys. Know what's true about me. Know what's true about the gospel and live in light of that. And that's all he really wants. But far too often people are more committed to their own cause, right? To our own vindication, to whatever other goal we might have than we are committed to the truth. It shouldn't be so. If I'm wrong, I want you to show me that I'm wrong and where I'm wrong so that we can know the truth. It's how we should all live. Just like if I have you know, a bunch of mustard on my face and I come up here to preach, that's embarrassing to me. And if you love me, you'll, you know, Subtly as you can, give me a sign. Let me know. Grab me before I get up here. Hey. Okay. Same thing with if I'm wrong about the truth, if I'm wrong, if I'm living in sin, I, I want you to tell me. I need you to tell me. And this is how we should all deal because we want to act according to the truth and not just, just to prove our own case or some other motive. Paul says, I can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. 
If that's not the case with us, we need to repent and realign our priorities so that we're lined up with just what's true. Because God is truth and we should love God more than anything, including ourselves. Love for God is the first and great commandment and God is the truth. People who put their own ends above the truth will also put love for neighbor above the truth. Failing to say hard things because it might hurt somebody's feelings or our friend might not like it. Changing our mind on what the Bible teaches because we have friends who don't agree. We can't do it. We cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. What a wonderful way to live your life. Paul wants the Corinthians to live this way. All right. Coming towards the end here. Paul's warning the Corinthians because he loves them and he wants them to be restored to God. We are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. He's happy if he's weak and they're strong. That's love, isn't it? He came to them in weakness to lift them up and exalt them. That's genuine love. Love is more than warm sentiments towards someone, right? If I can be weak, but you can be strong, then that's good. Love is desiring the good of other people, working towards it. They're at odds with each other, but he wants them to win, even if it means his own weakness. This is how Christ loved us, isn't it? Giving himself up for us, dying so that we can live. This is love. And Paul's actively praying and asking God for their restoration, for the truth to be seen. Because church discipline that he's warning about carrying out when he comes, church discipline is for the purity of the church, it's for the love of the truth, it's also for the restoration of the sinner. Even when church discipline goes all the way to handing someone over to Satan, it's with the hope of their souls being saved in the day of the Lord. That's what Paul had told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5. Even if they get put out of the church, it's with the goal that they're eventually restored on the day of Christ Jesus. This is what Paul is after with the Corinthians. And lastly, Paul's warning the Corinthians in the hope that he will not have to discipline them when he comes. Verse 10, for this reason, I write these things to you while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul has real authority in the church and that's given to him for building it up, for edifying, for building up and strengthening and purifying the church. If some of these people in Corinth are not of the church, but are rather working against it, he's going to have to come against them with severity. But if they repent and walk in the Lord, then he'll be able to just come with kind encouragement, which is better for everybody. It's better for Paul. It's better for them. Everybody's happy that way. That's what he wants. And he's praying. He's asking God for that outcome. He doesn't want to come and fight. He's willing to because he loves God and he loves the church, but he doesn't prefer it. Paul's not quarrelsome. And if they walk in righteousness, he won't have to. Because when we rule ourselves, we don't need authority to come against us. When we all rule ourselves directly before God, walking in the fruit of the spirit of self-control, then there's no need for punishment. And life just works so much better that way, doesn't it? When we're all just dealing honestly with God, open before him with our heart, taking care of our sins, dealing with them when they come up, confessing them, repenting of them, walking in the light, listening to one another, 
walking with one another. Everything works well. This is what we're seeking. In all of these things, we see the patience and the love of Paul in dealing with the church in Corinth. He's been dealing with this for years. These same sins, these same people, and he just keeps dealing. He keeps engaging. He keeps loving. What's the easiest thing to do in a situation like this? Is just walk away. If you guys want to be like this, fine. Have at it. I don't care. I got better things to deal with, right? That could, if Paul was just walking in the flesh, that's what he would do. But he loves them and he just keeps patiently enduring and dealing with them. And this is ultimately an expression of the patience and the love of God in Paul for the church, isn't it? Do you see how patient and loving God is towards his church, towards us, towards our sin? Do you get weary of hearing yourself confess the same sins and Sunday mornings when we gather, when we kneel to confess, and in your own lives daily as you're confessing your sins. You're weary of hearing myself confess the same sin over and over. How much more would you think God would weary of hearing it? Again, the same things day after day, week after week. But he's so patient with you. He's so patient with me. God's gracious kindness is abounding. His steadfast love is new every morning. His mercy refreshes every morning and he's just ready to forgive it again because he loves you in Christ Jesus. And that gracious kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, the Bible says. And so the best way is for us to know ourselves, to trust God, to walk uprightly before him in faith, and to thrive together. And where that fails to happen in our midst, we need to love God and his church enough to deal with it directly like we see Paul doing here. May God help us to walk together in genuine love for his glory and his enjoyment in his church. Amen. God, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you that you love us enough that you have this persistent love that doesn't just leave us in our sin, but that pursues us and persists in coming after us with your loving grace. Thank you for your church that you do this through brothers and sisters as we persevere with one another and loving each other. Father, thank you. And Lord God, we ask that you would work in us that we would be holy and pure before you, that we would be dealing with our sin and growing in our righteousness, growing towards you, that more and more we, we can be a church that truly walks in love for you and truly walks in your commandments and truly walks in the fullness of your Holy Spirit and truly confesses Christ and all of his gospel and adorns that gospel in the way that we live towards one another. Father, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your work in our midst. Thank you for this church. Thank you that this is a church with faithful brothers and sisters that I know and and trust would pursue me if I gave myself over to unrepentant, high-handed sin. Thank you that this is a church that wouldn't just forget about me, but that would pursue me in similar ways as we see Paul pursuing the church. What a gift that is, Father. Help us to do this well. Help us to do it in love. Help us to do it with the right ends and aims and motives and according to the brilliant structures of, that are laid down for us in your scripture. 
Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Now we ask that you will meet us with your grace at your table, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen.